Welcome to Inside Aesthetics, the podcast for cosmetic, wellness, and business insider knowledge. I'm Dr. Jake Sloan, a cosmetic doctor based in Sydney, and I'm joined by my co-host and good friend, David Segal, an entrepreneur and a multi-clinic owner in the aesthetic space. We'll cover any topic that makes you look or feel good with long form, unbiased, and unfiltered conversations with expert guests from around the world. New episodes are released every Friday and you can subscribe for free on your favorite podcast app, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You should seek medical advice before undergoing any treatment or procedure, and these podcasts do not replace a professional and bespoke consultation. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. That's our first panel discussion on Inside Aesthetics. Quite exciting. Um, we've got Stephen Liu, plastic Hello. surgeon. Davin Lim, dermatologist, Hello. Jacinta King, uh, registered nurse and Hi. president of the CNA, and Michael Moulton, a cosmetic physician and president of the CPCA, and David and myself. So guys, um, I guess on our podcast, one of the issues that keeps on cropping up is regulation, um, the laws around injectables, qualifications, training, and so on. So David and I had an idea to try to get together some thought leaders, influencers, and people who, um, you know, sort of have a voice within the industry. So originally we invited several people, um, and I don't know if David wants to give us a bit of a background to who was originally invited and then who we've got here tonight. Yeah. Yeah, thanks, Jake. So we did invite a representative from ASAPS, which is the Australian Society of Aesthetic Plastic Surgeons, and a representative from the ASCD, which is the Australian Society of Cosmetic Dermatologists. So both of those bodies respectfully declined to participate, but that's okay. We decided that discussion still needed to happen in any event, which is why we are all here. So again, thank you um, all for joining us here tonight. Stephen, do you want to just start, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background? I'd be surprised if uh, anyone in Australia doesn't know who you are, but I guess for some of the international people that might be listening to this, could you just give us a bit of a background? Sure. Um, good evening. Thank you for having me. Uh, I'm Stephen Liu. I'm a specialist plastic surgeon based in Sydney, Australia. Um, I've been practicing for about 19 and a half years. Uh, I have some keen interest in facial injectables. You've undersold yourself there, Stephen. That's okay. <laughs> Davin? Tough act to follow there, Stephen. So my name's Davin, Davin Lim, dermatologist, clinical practice for the last uh, 15 years. Um, I do a lot of injectables. Um, and being invited on this podcast, I can make it clear, I do not represent the ACD. It's just my views and my views only. Jacinta. And my name's Jacinta King. I'm a registered cosmetic nurse from the Sunshine Coast in Queensland. And today I'm representing the Cosmetic Nurses Association, um, or what we more commonly refer to as the CNA. So the CNA formed about 12 months ago in 2020 in response to the interest of nurses working in the non-surgical cosmetic space. We're a not-for-profit organisation backed by members and led by an advisory board of leading registered nurses and nurse practitioners. So we really formed as a response to the COVID lockdowns where we noticed that the cosmetic physicians and the plastic surgeons both had industry associations representing and being a voice for them and providing guidance throughout the COVID closures. However, nurses had no representation at all. So we know that nurses make up approximately 80% of the surgical cosmetic space and we knew that they needed representation. 
Now, our goal is to improve safety and standards, thereby improving the industry as a whole. Um, on a personal level, I was asked to be CNA of the, advisory, of the advisory board as a result of my leadership background, which was initially developed in the military. I worked as an Air Force officer um, in logistics before retraining as a nurse. And since then, my background has always been in critical care, being ICU and the cardiac cath lab before working in senior project management roles, building the new tertiary um, hospital on the Sunshine Coast and working as the after-hours nurse manager. I trained as a cosmetic nurse five years ago and have had my own successful clinic on the Sunshine Coast before selling it, and now I work exclusively for artist anaesthetics. Um, so really, because of my formal leadership training, you know, my exposure to governance, my exposure to procedural writing um, within my project management and my military roles, I was asked to be president of the CNA. Perfect. Thank you. And Michael, you're joining us uh, through Zoom from South Australia. So tell yeah. us about your background. Yeah, I'd love to have been with you guys today, but uh, um, conditions prevailed. Uh, so, yeah, I've been, I was one of two people that uh, uh, founded the uh, Cosmetic Physician Society of uh, Austro Australasia, was Australia, and prior to that it was uh, WA, uh, in 1997 with uh, Dr. Katura Hoffman, and it sort of grew from there. Uh, I took a bit of a backward step from, from there um, for a few years. I've been involved with the Australian College of Cosmetic Surgery, but um, in recent times uh, I've been elected as the president of the CPCA and the CPCA's main, uh, uh, let's say, uh, project is patient safety and uh, that's why I'm here today, I guess. Thank you, Michael. Thanks to everyone for your introduction. So maybe let's just move on to, I guess, the first topic that we wanted to talk about, which is injecting practices. Um, so we currently have doctors, registered nurses, enrolled nurses, nurse practitioners and dentists injecting across Australia. Um, can each of you individually um, give us your opinion on whether you agree um, if these professionals should be injecting? Um, and if not, are there some grey areas? Can you expand on this and why? So maybe we'll we'll start with Stephen, if you don't mind, first. Um yeah, thank you. Um, first of all, uh, what I'm going to discuss is, just like Devon, is my own personal view. I do not represent any societies as such. Um, this is an interesting area, and clearly there is no such thing as a specialty of facial injectable as such at the moment. Um, we clearly see there are lots of individuals doing it personally, while we don't have any defined specialty of facial injectable, I don't see any problems of various individuals doing it, whether you are plastic surgeon, dermatologist, general practitioners, cosmetic physician, whoever you want to call yourself, cosmetic nurses. I just like them to be doing the right thing, get a proper training, because unless you do so, you're going to create complication and that one complication, whether it's in Brisbane, Sydney or Perth, it's going to destroy that particular um, industry. Because let's face it, while we know we can do good things here, each, every one of us, but all and behold, when you mention the word cosmetic injectable in the public arena, it is not still something that is well embraced and regarded. There's still a tiny bit of taboo in there, just like any cosmetic form of surgery because the general public, more than 50% of them will consider this to be vain, totally unnecessary. So if we want this 
to grow, to become mainstream, we need to protect it. Each one of us need to be well-trained and contribute to the success of this story. Davin, did you have any views that differ to Stevens? Yeah, you've heard my view with certain things, um, Jake. Uh, look, I think moving forward, absolutely agree with Stephen, right? Um, do I have a problem now? The answer is no. I, th I think there's a lot of good injectables. The things that we have not, a lot of the injectables have not got a formal mentor training program, but they can still do good work, yeah. right? And it's almost like a grandfather clause. They've had it for so many years. They've experienced for so many years. Moving forward, though, I do think it needs to be regulated. The past is the past. We can't change that. But moving forward, I really do believe that. Mm -hmm. You know my joke with a dentist, yeah, where I say, look, you know, as a dermatologist, I might do some teeth whitening over the, uh, over the weekend to boost up my income or, or some root canal or some fillings. It's, you know, and then when I look at that, there's some bloody good dentist injectors here. Lee Walker just stands out. Mm -hmm. You've got intimate knowledge of anatomy, brilliant injector. But then I'm thinking, you know, can we actually move that forward for the people coming out? Yeah. And I think, um, I think change is probably important moving forward. Yeah. Perfect. And now, Jacinta, one of the reasons we got you here is because nurses have often been kind of sidelined and it's one of the reasons why the CNA was formed, I guess, because you didn't really have a voice as a collective profession. So who do you think should be injecting in Australia? Yeah, well, I agree with, you know, what's been said previously. I think that, you know, luckily in Australia, we do only have nurses, doctors or dentists that are actually allowed to administer medication. You know, unlike the UK, um, you don't actually need any formal um, medical, you know, training at all to be able to administer it. So we are lucky in that sense. And... Um, yeah, I, do, I really do think that it really comes down to the difference between, you know, your scope of practice and then also your skill set. So it needs to be within your scope of practice to be able to administer a medication. So in Australia, nurses can do that, registered nurses and enrolled nurses can do that. Um, but then, like we said before, it really comes down to skills. So any nurse can pick up a needle and inject, but do they have the appropriate training? And you're right, unfortunately, we aren't regulated at the moment. And that's across the board. That's across doctors as well as nurses. And I think it's really important that moving forward we do you know come up with a um with an appropriate framework come together get all the stakeholders together and come up with a formal framework that we can all work together and raise the standards of the industry because at the end of the day we really want to keep patients safe yeah i completely agree with you and we'll get to you in a sec michael and Jacinta. we were having a discussion around some of the concerns that even like i had as someone who's not a medical professional but involved in the industry with you know, people that are coming in particularly like uh, nurses straight out of university going straight into injecting without sort of any time spending in, you know, in the hospital system or doing any graduate years. So we'll get onto that in a minute. But before we do, Michael, do you want to um, share your views with us as well, if you could, please? Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, perhaps if I can first start with the, um, the first time that someone handed me a syringe was Marilyn Cassetta. Uh, and uh, not long after that was Cheryl Lee Newt. Uh, now, these uh, registered nurses have been around a long time. They're extremely skillful and extremely knowledgeable. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we all, that you know, medicine itself has a structure, uh, and I agree with every everything that everybody has said so far. There's a scope of practice. I have a scope of practice. Uh, nurses have a scope of practice. Plastic surgeons have a scope of practice. Everybody has a scope of practice in which they can work. The thing that, um, uh, that if, if you're talking about dentists, um, you know, I always thought that the definition of dentistry was about mastication. Uh, I didn't know that it was actually about injecting dermal fillers uh, into areas for 
which is essentially cosmetic medicine. So, um, you know, if you go back to uh, the, the UK, even back to 2012, uh, you know, uh, Sally Tabor, who was actually the secretary of, of the Nurses and Midwifery Council in the UK, said, you know, both the, the Nurses and Medical Council and the General Medical Council had already stipulated that registered nurses and dentists, uh, uh, sorry, sorry, dentists shouldn't be doing that, doing that anyway. And they were actually referring to uh, uh, to uh, remote consultations and that sort of situation. I know we're going to get onto that topic fairly soon, but I, I agree with everybody that uh, here. Um, in, in, I'm speaking on behalf of the college here. Um, you know, when I took office, uh, uh, my election platform was to get a, a proper qualification pathway, and we've been working through this Australian Qualification Framework uh, Level Eight. Uh, I admit that it's through vocational education and training and not QET, but um, it's a program that we've been developing, and it's an arduous process, uh, which uh, requires a great deal of in-depth knowledge, uh, and that 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 qualification is already um, uh, available for a number of uh, health practitioners that uh, it, uh, in dermal science and also in uh, cosmetic nursing. So the final thing that I'd like to say about this particular issue was that I was an affirmed witness at the Joint Ministerial Inquiry in New South Wales into uh, cosmetic procedures in that state in 2018. And I was astounded to hear that from the Nurses and Midwifery Council of New South Wales representative uh, when she was asked, what is what is a cosmetic nurse? And uh, the response was in a general way from that person, and they said uh, that uh, every, uh, that, that the Australian Health Practitioners Regulation Agency expects all health practitioners to understand what their scope of practice is. So this is, I think this is the major problem, is that we don't have definitions of a scope of practice. We're, we're sidelined. It's not the Nursing uh, Federation, not, not CNI or, or any cosmetic nurses that have been sidelined. Everybody is sidelined in this situation because nobody has provided any clear guidelines as to what is a proper qualification. Yeah, I believe, Michael, what you may have been referring to there is um, APRA doesn't like to recognise nurses as having a particular specialty. So that may have been where that came from. However, we know that, you know, this is such a fast growing industry that potentially we need to relook at that and approach APRA and provide them some guidance on why we do actually need this recognised as, as its own specialty for nurses. Absolutely. Uh, and we need to define and, you know, what that scope of practice is for all people, whether it's cosmetic physicians, whether it's plastic surgeons, you know, anybody in this field. The, the one thing that we need to be very cognizant of here, uh, I think for me this is the take-home message. If we want to end up like the UK, uh, then we're going down the right pathway. Each of us need to collaborate as the Australian Ethical Healthcare Alliance is encouraging us to do. Uh, is, is to collaborate with one another, is to get around the table. And it's disappointing not to see members of the ASCD and a ASAPs uh, who, you know, um, for whatever reason, uh, do not want to engage in this kind of discussion, which is a shame. But we do need to collaborate and we do need to, you know, engage with, with each other and find those common grounds and find those 
qualifications that we are really comfortable with, that we each can work with. Um, thank, thanks, Michael, for elaborating on that. I think the concept of the scope of practice too, to me, is also something of a fluid nature because if you think about you define the dentistry bit. Now, that was a very classical definition because we do know there's a sub-branch of cosmetic dentistry where they do improve the appearance of the perioral region. So, so once again, I, I know you're not singling them out. You're just mentioning dentistry. As Devin was saying, it's very hard and it's very unfair to make a general comment of dentists probably don't have the scope because we do know there are some very good dentists or dental trained individuals out there who are very good in the area of cosmetic treatment, injectable, understanding that knowledge because this is still a relatively new field. Even if I were to search the definition or my scope of practice. My scope of practice includes any form of reconstructive, restorative, as well as cosmetic enhancement. So if I were to really, really stand my ground, probably I'm the only one should be doing it because that is clearly defined in my scope of practice. But that is not true because if you want to push that further and look at what the insurance company or even APRA classify each one of us. Now, the last time I checked, there's no such thing as cosmetic physician. No, right? of course. Yeah. So I just think that while we're here talking about common ground in there, I just think that scope of practice to me is an ever-changing thing. I like to still think more of a skill set. What are you skilled for? What are you, are you trained? Are you not trained? Until a time, you know, in the near future, hopefully we can actually define who should be doing it, who have the skill set and who should be the scope of practice should be within each of the of our specialty. I, I just reiterate that uh, if we want to go down the pathway of what's happened in the UK, then we're going in the right direction because right now, um, I mean, I as far as the college that I represent is concerned, we're not we're not that we're not that concerned about this, but I'm, we're concerned about the public. Uh, and you know, if we go down the pathway of everybody can do this, whether you're an optometrist, a podiatrist, or uh, you know any of the allied health uh, practitioners, and this is what will happen. This is what's happened in the UK. So. It's all very well to say it's down to a skill set. Does a podiatrist have a skill set in cosmetic medicine? Because it'll expand very, very quickly. And before you know where you are, you'll be having beauticians and and, and goodness knows who else uh, performing those sorts of procedures. So, Gavin, you got your hand up. Yeah, look, I probably disagree with that. I think the industry is going in the right direction. We've got S4s for a reason. Um, podiatrist, beautician's not going to get that S4. I don't think, I mean, I really don't think that uh, the laws are going to change and I don't think TJ is going to allow uh, beauticians and podiatrists uh, to inject. It's an S4 and it'll remain an S4. Well, if I could just, just uh, give you a little bit of insight back on, back on that. 
uh, prior to COVID, um, the college was invited to a meeting at New South Wales Health Department, uh, along with uh, ASAPs and uh, uh, a lot of other stakeholders. And their uh, aim uh, has been stated to be that they want to divide uh, therapeutic benefits, the therapeutic uses of the products that we use in cosmetic medicine, uh, and they want to divide them from therapeutic to cosmetic. So they, they went around the table and asked all, all the attendees that represented the various organisations that said, we want you to declare what therapeutic uh, uses you want to preserve for things like botulinum toxin A and dermal fillers. And so that's, that is the legislative, that, the, those are the processes that were prior to COVID. Uh, I understand that, you know, um, New South Wales is continuing to look down that pathway. Also, of course, we've got uh, changes that have already occurred uh, in uh, Tasmania. Um, so um, some s significant restrictions there. So I think the laws will change. Uh, and, uh, and Brad Hazard has is recorded in uh, New South Wales Hazard Hansard as saying that he will take it to uh, you know what was the COAG, uh, which is now of course um, the, uh, the the state uh, min state health ministers group um, uh, and roll out these sorts of changes. So I think it will change, but it might not. It might take a long time. I mean, this is, I promised myself I wouldn't sort of jump in on the debate. I, I thought I was going to be the host here, but I'm just going to give one sort of insight, I guess. You know, my background is general surgery. You know, I, I can't claim to be a cosmetic expert in any of my scope of practice, but I think it's difficult for any group to say that any other profession, i.e. dentists, nurses, dermatologists or plastics don't have a skill set. So if we as physicians, for example, say that dentists don't command the face and they, they don't know how to use a dermal filler, it's very difficult for, for a physician to say that they should be doing facial slimming, bruxism or any other treatment outside the scope of cosmetic, but they do. So, it, you know, it's very difficult for, I think, one profession to say another should or shouldn't when we don't have a, a qualification. And that's one of the reasons why I sort of invited you guys here tonight, because, you know, we need to debate these things robustly as, as, as professionals rather than just saying you can or you can't. Well, I, 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 so, yeah, I completely agree with that. Uh, it's just, uh, you know, the facts are that the, that the law is moving in a certain direction. Uh, it's been interrupted by COVID um, and whether or not we'll go back into that uh, that pathway is, is undecided at the moment. But um, like I say, uh, you know, if you want to go to the UK and see what's happening there because people didn't take uh, notice of exactly what was happening and now they've got to capture all these people in a voluntary way and get them skill setted, uh, you know that that's that's the likelihood, and you know that's the reality of the of the situation. Can we interrupt that? Can we stop that? Should we stop that? That's the subject of discussion here tonight, I guess. But um, that's 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 the way it is. Thanks, Michael. Thanks everyone for your for your thoughts on that. So. 
let's move on to the to the next question. So injectables are currently available in beauty salons, spas, high street clinics, um, traditional medical practice like a dermatologist practice and, and surgical clinics. What do you guys think about that? I mean, apart from the perception, what is the actual difference between an injector working in a salon, uh, in a room with a sink and a bed, having CPR training, training versus working in a clinic, in a shopping mall or a dermatologist room? So um, Stephen, would you like to take with that one first? Yeah, I've always maintained that this is a medical procedure. It should be done in a medical environment, um, in a proper setup clinic. Um, I know it's been a lot of this injectable has been done in someone else's kitchen, this room, for instance, you know, if you want to, or hair salon typically because it's convenient. But complication albeit extremely rare, bad complication can happen. And all we need is just one death and that's enough to create so much havoc and knee-jerk reaction. So I am traditional. I believe it should not be done anywhere outside of a medical clinic setting because we do have the facility to resuscitate someone adequately. We do have the proper lighting, space and we also have the personnel who know how to deal with it rather in a cramped little space with no one medically trained apart from the injector. Davin, did you have any extra thoughts on that? Or? Yeah, I'm kind of divided Yeah, because I think that um, the with all due respects, the lower cost clinics, at least they give um, the general population somewhere to go, right? And there's a big, big community. There's a, there's a, it's a big market space there. So it's for I think it's for everyone. The caveat is exactly what Stephen says. It needs to be regulated. Where I think that the side, of, as you know, yeah, when we talk medical stuff, the side effects of certain things, you know, whether it be high lace injections or what have you. Look, I think if you're a well-trained nurse, right, if you go through your CPR, is there something which, for example, that we can do that they might not be able to manage in the acute setting, right? That, that's a big question, right? If they can manage it, then by all means, that, practice I think is is, uh, is suitable. Where I think the difference is uh, with training our nurse injectors is, you know, I scare the shit out of them because they see the amount of side effects that come through, right? Probably to Stephen, probably to me. Every week there's a lot of side effects, which means when my nurses, when they work with me and they go to somewhere else and they work in the shopping center, I think they're at a better level of training. Yeah? They're more careful because they've seen the scope out there. It, when you're working in a shopping center type uh, clinic, you don't see the scope of, uh, of side effects. But when you're working in the medical practice, whether it be a cosmetic physician, derm, plastics, they see the side effects. And I think being mindful of that makes someone a better injector. Um, Jacinta, obviously your um, members of your society are mainly, well, our nurses, and they tend to work maybe on their own or autonomously. Did you have any views on where they should be injecting? Yeah, well, first of all, I just noticed that Davin mentioned mostly nurses, but it's you know important to note that there are doctors also working in those facilities and working in medispas and working in shopping centres as well, so it's not exclusively nurses. Um, I think what we what it really comes down to, like you said, Stephen, is is safety. So we need to make sure the the main difference is you know a, a proper established accredited medical practice would have more safety equipment available. Um, hopefully, infection control standards are probably a little bit more tightly regulated. Um, so, um, 
you know, I think what's also important to note is that you mentioned that nurses work autonomously. Nurses actually don't work autonomously. They actually work in collaboration at all times with a doctor. So, you know, um, it really is the doctor's responsibility who's working with that nurse to make sure that that nurse is appropriately trained in any of setting um, and that infection control is being, being covered and that they know how to handle any situation or any adverse event, event or can refer on if need be. Perfect. Thank you. And Michael, anything to add to locations of injections and clinics, etc.? Well, um, no, two things. Um, the first thing was that you opened the conversation, Jake by uh, or David, um, by talking about perception. Uh, and the perception of the public is that they're, uh, they're entitled to believe that if these pr- procedures are being performed in these, uh, in these facilities, then obviously it's okay that that that's an entitlement of the of the public to believe um unfortunately that's not the case um so that's the first thing and in fact if i if i talk if if i mention um if i can mention a patient just today uh came into me uh, and she'd had some tear trough work done and um one thing or another and she said but you know the problem is that it's like you get this idea that it's like getting your nails done. So perception, I think, is the key here, is that if you've got a perception, if the public got a perception that it's okay to go to uh, a, a non-medical clinic and get this kind of work done and it's okay, that's the wrong perception. So I'm, I absolutely agree with, uh, with Stephen uh, on, on this. Um, and, you know, when COVID uh, hit um, and there were places being closed down when they were clearly medical clinics, uh, but they advertised themselves as if they were a, a day spa or a beauty clinic or something like that, the, the, the name that lent itself towards a description of uh, beauty uh, instead of medical, then for sure they were going to be told to, to shut down or find or whatever when they had a legitimate right to be treating people because they're medical practitioners with um, allied health practitioners working as a team uh, to look after their health. So, um, so those are the that, that, that's 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 the thing that I think is um, that it's it is the wrong perception that we send people if these procedures are being performed within clinics that are non-medical. Thanks, Michael. Stephen, did you want to um, say something to that? Yeah, um, I just want to well, clarify one thing is when I say medical clinic, I I think of medical clinic is any clinic with a proper facilities, be it building to high street, be it building in a shopping centre, you know. It doesn't have to be a Dr. Lou medical clinic. That's what I mean. But a question to Jacinta talking about nurses working in collaboration with, I guess, in this case, the prescribing doctors. I think in reality that works very well. In theory, it should work very well. But in reality, it's not much of a collaboration in my mind. Is you know, most of the time, from what I gathered in some situation, the prescribing doctor probably does not even inject because you have some part-time person you know make some quick buck I'm going to be a prescribing doctor fulfill that in 
you know, signing that script there. How is that a collaboration? The second thing is, how is it a collaboration when you have a, let's say, a new doctor or new nurse who just graduated six months ago, suddenly have their own clinic injecting? That is not a collaboration. Yes, they have a script, they have a prescribing doctor, but how is it a collaboration? I'm not entirely sure. And, and, and I'm sure majority of you know, nurses want to do the right thing. But just like any profession, I think it's, it's sort of, you know, hopefully your society will have the authority, the voice, the guideline to say, these are the things that you shouldn't be doing. That's what I like to see a society, a new society like you know, CNA, to be able to have that, that sort of guideline to say, hey, guys, this is something we shouldn't be doing. You know, you are three months out. Go and get others supervised yep. position. Yeah, and that's, and thanks for raising that, Stephen. And the CNA completely agrees with that. And we would actually really love to see the industry move forward with minimum training standards, such as a postgrad for cosmetic nurses that have to have a minimum number of years of hospital experience under their belt before they are actually able to work in these collaborations. Um, in addition to that, doctors that are you know providing these scripts or you know pr- you know authority to treat that don't have any injector um, experience themselves needs to stop as well. You know they need to have the knowledge. They need to know what the standard dose to treat a glabella is. And they need to know how to treat every single complication um, and step up to that into that position when they need. So I completely agree with you. Um, it has gotten a little bit too loose and we, we really need to, you know, moving forward, improve these standards. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I can just add something there. Thank you. I, I, I can't believe what I'm hearing here. This is just, just fantastic. Um, for, for far too long, you know, um, I, I think we're going to get on to the topic of uh, remote prescribing shortly, so I don't want to preempt anything there. But thank you for those comments because it's very uh, reassuring. Well, I was going to say we, we put out um, a story on Instagram today just to get some questions from the public, and, and one of them was similar to that. And someone had some concerns, uh, concerns about teleconsulting, saying that they felt it was inappropriate. So maybe we could just go around in a circle again and start with Stephen. So. For the listeners listening, um, I know in the UK this is actually now banned, but teleconsulting and telescripting effectively means a doctor has to be viewed on the end of a phone or in person, um, of course, have a a face-to-face consultation with the patient and prescribe uh, the medication, which in this case would be botulinum toxin A or a dermal filler or otherwise. So, Stephen, do you think that's uh, a practice that is appropriate for cosmetic injecting in Australia? No. Um, telehealth was first introduced many, many years ago out of necessity. Telehealth was created so that individuals who cannot reach a practitioner to get treatment, you know, so that we can offer an alternative way of providing them a service. That's out of necessity. That is for health reason. The last time I checked, Cosmetic medicine is not for health reason. No one, no one will shorten their lifespan if they have one extra wrinkles or their faces will be deflated. So that's, that's beside the point. I think from my personal journey, like most people in COVID, I have to start doing some telehealth consultation. I absolutely hated it for a number of reasons. Most of the time, I can't really see the face that well. 
Now, if I were a prescribing doctor to take all my responsibility, I want to be able to see that face so well. Occasionally, I will want to touch it to be able to say, I agree with you. We should do this. We should do that. At the moment, I don't think we have the technology to do so. That's my greatest concern about the telehealth is it's a one-way street. I rely totally on someone that I probably don't even know and prescribing and say, yes, okay, I agree. That face is a bit deflated. That size is a little bit deflated. I need more here. I need more here. So that's that's my own because I just don't think you get you get the real feel of the patient's face in order to create an optimal result. And go back to it. This is not an emergency. We need a telehealth. Thank you. Davin, yeah, any no, views I, on that? No, I agree. But I mean, I had a telehealth company with the uh, with the professor of, of um, in, in Queensland yeah, um, about 13 years ago. I hated telehealth, really hate it. Um, I do believe that there's value when it comes to lesions of concern, dermatoscopic. I think that's very, very good, very accurate. Yeah, And it's shown in many studies, it's got a very high um, accuracy rate. But when it comes to cosmetics, there's often nonverbal cues Right, which we we can't see with a picture. We can certainly, you know, when we talk about what we want to do, but what ideally we should do, we should actually have the patient there with interaction. So I'm an old-fashioned kind of dude with this. I think it should be face-to-face. Fair enough. Yeah, so from the CNA, you know, obviously COVID has proven that telehealth has been wildly successful and there hasn't, you know, we're not on any notice of um, any adverse, you know, events happening from the use of telehealth, Um, you know, and we don't really see a problem with it as long as it's done correctly and there is a right way and there is a wrong way to do it. Um, You know, it shouldn't just be a quick, you know, 10 second high and buy. It needs to be a full medical handover from the nurse to the doctor, including, you know, with a proposed treatment plan that's come up together in collaboration with the doctor. um, you know, the, the medical practitioner needs to be satisfied that that consumer is an appropriate candidate through the use of the, you know, good quality video. I know you can't palpate. However, good quality video, you know, should hopefully be enough in some cases. Um, you know, the doctor needs to be, a doctor or nurse practitioner who's prescribing needs to ensure that informed consent has been intain, obtained. So consent is crucial in this process. Um, and then the nurse can be given the directed to, directive to administer the medicine. Um and then the medical practitioner needs to make sure that um, everything's noted in the patient's file and has the opportunity to be recalled at any event or any change um, in their medical history should they be represent again. Michael, I know you've got some views. So did you want to let us know how you feel? Yeah, I, I, um, I think I, I certainly echo um, uh, what's been said so far. Um, I think it's worthwhile... Uh, looking at how telehealth has been accepted uh, with COVID and so on, and there's, there's no doubt that um, it's here in in some form to stay. Um, but you know, it was always designed to strengthen the GP patient relationship with the regular GP. Uh, it, you know, with COVID nineteen. Um, you were, the recommendations from the RACGP was that, yes, you can have a telehealth consultation with the GP that you know. Um, and, and, you know, that was out of necessity because you couldn't actually leave, or you could if it was an emergency, but the four reasons didn't include just going off to the GP to get a repeat script or something like that. 
so it was much much better to to have uh, telehealth. Since that time, um, you know, the the, the medi that if we look at the medical benefits schedule, um, and I know that's got nothing to do with uh, cosmetic because we don't get any rebates from Medicare, but the, nevertheless, the principles are still there. That you develop a long-term relationship with the general practitioner. And telehealth was designed to, uh, to embrace that relationship and to improve that relationship and to strengthen it, as Harry uh, uh, you know, um, Nesselton, uh, uh, who, uh, who, who was the president at that particular time uh, back in July 2020 when the RACGP gave out that, uh, that message that it really should be with the regular GP. I don't think that there's a regular, uh, I mean, I have 9,000 regular patients. Uh, they come to see me every four months or three months or six months or a year or every two years. That relationships have been built up over a long period of time. The thing that I see uh, where uh, a patient who's called a client, by the way, goes into, uh, you know, one of these corporate organisations and um, they see uh, someone uh, uh, and the person says, okay, well, we'll get the doctor on the line. They've never met the doctor. So this is really outside of the, 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 the principles of what telehealth was really designed to do and the way it should work. So I don't think that it's a really good idea to be doing things with a doctor that you don't know, that doesn't know, as Stephen says, the, the first thing uh, or very little about actually injecting or performing these sorts of procedures. Jacinta, you had your hand up. Do you want to yeah, counter that? Yeah, I agree that the doctor should actually know the nurse that they're prescribing for and the doctor should have knowledge um, within this industry. You know, this practice of doctors coming in and prescribing for nurses who they don't know, who they don't know what their skill set is, they don't know what their training is, how much experience they've got, um, and they don't actually inject themselves. That needs to stop. You know, when I mentioned earlier about nurses going um, going forward and having postgrads to enter this industry, the same should apply to a general, a general doctor that's coming in. You know, it's not exclusively nurses that need that extra training. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that, Jacinda. But the part that I don't agree with is that they don't know the patient. The doctor doesn't know the patient, and which is what the you know RACGP and also the AMA. Uh, you know, that, that's why they supported telehealth was when you can't see your GP face to face, and you don't have an emergency, but you know your GP, you can contact them through telehealth. So the, the principles in which they're being used at the moment in cosmetic medicine, which were, as Jake introduced at the beginning, were banned by the General Medical Council in 2015, regardless of the fact when APRA said, yes, we should ban it, and then they said no, that video consults could, could uh, continue in this way. Um, you know, they don't, we, it's not meant to be used like this, as Stephen says. I mean... I agree that, you know, the origins of teleconsulting were quite different to how they're used now. But I think COVID's been quite revelatory for a lot of specialties. We've had podcast guests on who initially didn't want to do it. Uh, they're plastic surgeons, they're ENTs, they're cosmetic physicians as well. And actually the feedback, and I haven't done it myself, has been overwhelmingly positive that both patients and doctors have felt it was a really valid 
process. Um, and, you know, we all sort of want patient safety and high quality. It doesn't seem to have been impacted. I don't have any examples, but I don't know if anyone in the room has any examples where it hasn't worked out or it's been unsafe. Well, yes, there are. Uh, there's two uh, permanent vision loss cases in New South, New South Wales as a result of that. Do you want to elaborate on that, Michael? You know, it's common knowledge. Well, please elaborate for the listeners, because we know, but you know, the listeners are listening here. Okay. So in 2018, uh, at uh, uh, the conference um, uh, with ASAPS and uh, the CPCA, uh, NSS 2018, um, the president of ASAPS at that particular, in the last session, uh, told us that there had been two cases of permanent vision loss, one of which was involved was involving um, a, a quite a distance between the medical practitioner and uh, the registered nurse who performed the procedure, uh, and the patient complained of vision loss, uh, and the doctor instructed the nurse to uh, to use highlights. Uh, unfortunately, apparently, and this is what we're led to believe, is that the product was out of date and uh, the product was therefore not used. So there's been there's been two cases of those sorts of things happening uh, that we know of, um, uh, and there are lesser cases of uh, you know, ischemic necrosis, and we've seen these things on a current affair and other current affair programs. Uh, of, of where these situations have happened without the doctor being on site. The doc it's not best practice. Uh, uh, Michael, I just want to clarify. I'm, I'm, I know those two cases quite uh, in quite detail. The first case was around 2018. Um, I wasn't sure whether telehealth was involved. Um, I think whether or not, I, I just think it's a little bit unfair to single out telehealth being blindness. I think whether the doctor's there or not, the blindness is still going to happen. That's number one. Whether or not, whether a doctor there is going to, A, improve the outcome, I'm not so sure myself. The second case, in fact, there's only been two cases in the last 50 years that I'm aware of. The second case actually happened last year. That has got nothing to do with telehealth. That was actually treated by a doctor. Luckily, the patient was salvaged at a high hospital with the proper protocol. So that was a good save. So just I'm just I'm just mentioning it just for 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 the record. There has not been two cases because of telehealth. One of them certainly is not telehealth. But once again, you know, it, it's not about the, the blindness. I I don't I don't think anyone can avoid blindness. Whether you know whether I'm there, my nurse injecting in another room, you know that that's not the point. Thanks, Jacinta. Do you want to? Yeah, you want to I was to just that? going to agree with Stephen there and say, yeah, I think having a doctor necessarily on site doesn't um, prevent an occlusion or prevent an adverse, you know, outcome actually occurring in the first place. Okay, thank you, guys. Um, I just wanted to add to that as well. I mean, I, I guess everyone's got their opinions on telehealth. The reality is that it's here that the majority of our industry in cosmetic injectables, as Jacinta pointed out, um, are being undertaken by nurses. So. Getting rid of telehealth doesn't sound like it's going to be a plausible 
next step for us. It'd be very difficult to undo that. So what is the solution, Stephen? Did you, did you want to answer that? Yeah, so, so I don't have a solution to that. I, I think it's here. Was it because there are some very, very smart individual who saw the potential in telehealth and exploit this particular facility for their own financial benefits? I think the answer is probably yes. Now, does that mean it's right? I still disagree with it. Yeah, but I think it's here to stay. Um, and the only way forward is we um, train the people who are at the other end, as in the doctors and also the nurses. Um, and it's hard because I think this has come so far, like you mentioned, um, but I don't see it uh, regressing. I think it's here to stay. Yeah. And the only way forward is better training for everyone. Yeah, I'm just to give my two pennies worth. Um, I script for one nurse, and so I'm sort of using the telehealth, but in a way that I think is appropriate. So you're right. If you've got a team of doctors sort of scripting for people all over the country, you know, it it seems illogical that they would be able to have any sort of responsibility or or way of looking after that patient or even ability to get there. So my nurse is in Sydney. Um, I won't take on more than one, maybe two, limited by my time. And I think what we're saying is that we have to use the tool appropriately. It's not the tool that's the problem. It's, you know, picking up doctors from ED who've got zero cosmetic um, injecting experience saying, sure, I'll do some scripting on my day off when I'm post nights and, you know, I'm sitting in bed. You know, I think that is the argument, not that the, um, teleconsulting is the issue. So... So maybe Jake and Jacinta, you can answer this question. I often wonder who who is ultimately responsible for that patient if there's a s- severe complication. Was it the nurse or the doctor? Are they both responsible? And in the case of a lawsuit, what would happen there? I'll let Jacinta answer that and then I can add to it. Yeah, I'd probably say both. Both are definitely responsible. So the the nurse has, you know, their um, scope of practice and their um, code of conduct to comply with and make sure that everything's being followed up in collaboration with the doctor. From a legal perspective, it's hard to say without knowing what the case was and what actually occurred. Um, But I would assume, you know, both would take responsibility. I can just just say from from a um, from a business owner's perspective, when you you have situ- situations where you have an adverse event, it may not be an occlusion; it may just be a, a bad aesthetic outcome. It might just be a, a patient that has unrealistic expectations, and you know, being on the receiving end of someone who's gone down the legal pathway, they generally go for everyone. Anyone that's got money, anyone that's got skin in the game, usually both people get letters. Um, insurance companies get involved, and usually these things get resolved. Very very seldom do these things end up in court. They generally get resolved on a commercial basis before that. But generally, once a lawyer's involved, they'll send letters to anyone who they think's got money. <laughs> That's okay. just from a business perspective. Okay. Yeah, um, no, you're, you're absolutely correct. The last one turns the light out. Um, they'll just join everybody in those sorts of situations. Um, no, look, I think in the end, uh, the public decides um, I, that's the way I think ARPA, uh, we, we have these anti-competitive laws, but I think a, a lot of the time the regulators uh, are a little bit afraid of, uh, you know, going to court. Uh, we saw 
uh, we saw the ophthalmologists uh, sue the optometry board. It cost Arthur $800,000 and over anti-glaucoma drugs. And they wanted the optometrists, the optometry board gave the official uh, okay for them to be prescribing anti-glaucoma medications. And the Australian Society of Ophthalmologists took them to court and it cost IPRA $800,000. In the end, it came back to, uh, yes, you can diagnose, but you have to refer. And, you know, these sorts of situations of law are, are all very well. But in the end... The public will decide, and and the public is becoming more more discerning. And I know that you know patients that I see are probably, um, you know, like we all see, we see a certain section of the community. But so many patients that I see, they they will come in and say, I I wouldn't do that. You know, uh, I, that doesn't sound right to me. That I went into this place and. Um, the nurse went off and she 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 had a quick chat with someone and came back and said yes I can do that. Uh, that's not that's not what I think is supposed to happen. So I think in the end the public will decide, and I think that's what APRA and every other regulator and every other organisations realised. Thanks, Michael. Um, we'll move on to the next question. It's probably appropriate for me to ask this one. Um, oh, sorry, Stephen, did you want to didn't jump in? Jake has not replied to oh, that. Who's responsible? Sorry. So, <laughs> look, um, I, I guess like any medical situation where a doctor's prescribing a drug, it, it will depend on the situation. So, for example, if someone was allergic to the drug prescribed and I, as the prescribing doctor, didn't check for that and then they had an anaphylaxis and died... That's that's my name on, on that script, of course. Um, whereas if it's a procedural thing, I think that, you know, the lawyers and, and when things come to a head, there's going to be an issue with both the nurse involved as well as the doctor. So it's a, it's a team effort. At the end of the day, if you're a doctor and you're willing to put your name on a script and prescribe for a nurse, you have to take that responsibility, which is why I'm happy to script for one nurse who I know who's within uh, my proximity. So question to you and question for Jacinta. Has there been any cases where that you're aware of where the prescribing doctor disagree with your nurse's treatment plan and say, hey, I don't think you should do that. Maybe you should do this. In my situation, yeah, it comes up not frequently, but it's happened. Um, and the nurse has taken my advice, which is, you know, why I'm a prescribing doctor. We have a good relationship. Ultimately, it's the doctor's decision to treat or not treat um, or delay treatment, etc. I don't know if you've had any different experience, Jacinta? Yeah, sometimes um, from my own experience, I'll do a, you know, a consult with my patient. And then when I actually call the doctor and talk to them, the patient will disclose a whole heap of more medical information that they didn't disclose to me, which would preclude them from having the treatment. So in that in that situation, the doctor will say, actually, no, we can't do the treatment because of that reason. So I think it does happen. Okay. That happens in, uh, in, in, in real life uh, and, and it goes the other way sometimes. Uh, that, you know, I have in the past, I don't have any nurses working with me now. So I'm speaking from a personal point of view at this particular time. But uh, certainly I, I've had experienced nurses say to me, I don't, have you thought about this? I'm not quite sure if I've explained this correctly, but I don't think that 
form of treatment should be actually performed on this person because of X, Y, or Z. Uh, this is this is collaboration. This is where we work in a team. That's where this should be working. This is how this all should be working. And that's how it works in the hospital system. That's how it works in medicine. Thanks, Michael. Um, so moving on to the next question, which um, is called the turf war. Um, and for someone that's been in the industry that's not medical, that's um, been in, involved in, in multiple businesses, I've seen this turf war between lots of different factions within the industry for many years. And sometimes it's not explicit. It's sort of behind the scenes. People are lobbing hand grenades to each other um, behind their keyboard or putting in anonymous complaints to various regulators. Um, from my perspective, from someone that's not medical, I sort of understand that there might be genuine reasons from time to time why people do that. But f- you know, my personal views are there's, there are some commercial reasons why people people do this to try and stifle someone that they think is encroaching on their territory. If you look at the market penetration, we're looking at sub 10% still of people who are undergoing um, aesthetic treatments. And from again, from an outsider's perspective, when we're sort of, you know, when someone does the wrong thing, sure, let's jump, let's jump on it and let's, let's report them and, and work together in, as an industry to improve standards and make sure that our patients are safe. But there is a perception out there that Sometimes patients don't understand the differences between certain specialties or people with, with different medical backgrounds and training, and it sometimes tarnishes the whole industry and sometimes people get unfairly targeted. So why is this turf war still existing? Um, what are the motivations behind it? And how do we move forward and mature as an industry to try and stop these things from happening in the future? So I'll just uh, let you start off, Stephen. Well, this is a, this is a tough one. I'm trying to understand answer this as honest as transparent as possible. I think I'm probably not the right person to explain why, but I do see the reason why this question pop up. I'm an idealist. I've always believed and I always embrace competition. Competition is always good for the industry. I think the market will always sort itself out. There's always going to be the Kmart. There's always going to be the Coles. They're always going to be Hermes. So I think the market will dictate itself because everyone wants something done. Sometimes they can't afford certain level. They will go for a slightly cheaper, but to them it's equally good service. And I have no problem with that. So why the turf war? I think in, invariably I like to think that humans are forever greedy. Um, I don't know why, because we are all working in a blue sky industry, as you have correctly alluded, with only touching just 10% of the potential market. If we collaborate ourselves and do it well, we can actually grow that. It's good for everyone. So I know I'm not explaining or replying to your question, but that's how I see. I see it is. If you're well-trained, you're good for the industry, you should be doing it, but you've got to be well-trained. Davin, you've been around for a while and you've worked <laughs> in a few different countries. What, mm. What's your take on the factions? I, I think, <clears throat> look, this, I think there's a couple of things here. Um, like Stephen mentioned, stratification. I, I think stratification is good, right? I think everyone should have the choice. Like I said, whether you go to Kmart, Coles, Hermes, it's just like a haircut, whether you go to a director, whether you go at Stefan, whoever you want, price attack, whatever. That's, that's, that's your choice, yeah? And we all, we all make choices with that, right? So I think stratification is really good for any industry, not just what we do, but any industry. 
in the context of the turf war, I think um, <laughs> I think I know bloody egos. Yeah, I think there's a lot of egos there. We can only build what we can build. Yeah, so I think when it comes to greed and all, I think money and, and financial interests. I don't know. I mean, we're all busy, right? Anyone who's any good, we're super busy with stuff. We're not worried about you know, geez, have I got the next patient in? It's the booking that needs to be filled. I personally think there's a lot of egos within the industry. Yeah, I'm not going to mention any names, but I'm just saying there's, there's egos involved. Jacinta, what's your experience on uh, the turf war? I have to, I have to laugh that we just got referred to price attack, but uh, <laughs> we're definitely not anything to do with beauty. We're, we're definitely a medical um, service, but yeah, look, I think other than safety, so um, reporting things for safety, that's obviously really important. But it comes down to you know stakeholder revenue share. You know who's going to you know make the most money, unfortunately, um, and it's worth noting that this. Um, occurs between doctors reporting nurses, nurses reporting nurses. So it goes across all specialties. It's not exclusively one or the other. Um, But I think, you know, I guess what's unique about us is that we are medical practitioners that all of a sudden are running a business and we're not business people, we're medical people. So, you know, I think sometimes this turf war happens because, you know, we don't know how to focus on and grow our own business. And I think if everyone just focused on that and stayed in their own lane and, you know, improve their own practice, they won't need to look at what's happening down the street or what's look what's happening next door um, because their business will flourish if they actually focus on their own business. Sorry, Devin, yeah, you yep. wanted to jump in? I swear to God, my hairdresser's price attack. I get my hair done at price oh, attack. <laughs> Honestly, <laughs> Helen, she's an awesome That's, hairdresser. I, I, didn't, Tripoli, I, didn't, yeah. I didn't mean to say anything against I'm, price I'm, attack. I'm more referred that yeah. we don't, we're not a medical, we're not a beauty I'm, I'm professional. Not, I'm not a tired ass, but she can really cut hair well. Yeah, so. You do have good hair. Thanks. <laughs> Stephen? I don't know about you, Stephen. I've of course go to Stefan. <laughs> <laughs> Michael, Michael, uh, did you want to respond to that? Michael, just give me a second to mute everybody and then I'll let you jump in. I don't have I don't go to price attack. <laughs> I lost it all a long time ago. Um, look, the, uh, stratification of businesses and all those sorts of things uh, are all very important. Uh, it, as I mentioned before, or you know, in passing, um, the public will decide where they want to go and what they want to do. Um, and there's not a lot that you can do about that. Um, and some of them will go to good people and some of them will go to bad, you know, to people that don't know and they'll have bad experiences. I think the job is to educate the patient, to educate the public uh, uh, in, the, you know, what people should be looking for in a, 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 a facility that they're going to visit for these sorts of procedures. Who's got the... The uh, com- you know the the uh, confidence and and the skills and the qualifications and whatever that and the experience most of all, um, they'll they'll the, the public is much more discerning than they ever were before. Uh, they they're, they're not silly, they're you know. So I think that that's really the leveling thing. So I, I guess I'm agreeing with everybody uh, across the board. But I, I will say that. I, I don't know what a turf war is. Uh, I don't understand that I, from for, from the college point of view, we don't have a turf war. Uh, you know, we've, we've reached out to the ASCD, we've reached out to ASAPs, 
uh, we've reached out to ACCS to find the common ground, and we've also reached out to the CNA. I haven't had a reply from you guys uh, just yet, and we're really keen to meet uh, and discuss those common grounds that uh, that exist rather than the things that differ. Um, we're all in this together. Um, you know, why can't we get around the table and and be honest with each other and, you know, discuss the things that let's forget about the things that separate us and let's let's concentrate on the things that join join us together and that is patient safety you put patient safety first the money will flow if you put money first then you're in trouble Stephen, did you want to add something yeah michael um i think the turf war certainly is real i mean many a times once again, not mentioning any names, I think there are a real threats. Sorry, there's a real perceived threat among a lot of doctors that the nurses are taking over. Now, you know what I'm talking about. I think it is true. I mean, you go to any conference, you can see a group of doctors bitching about nurses doing this, doing that, and why are they allowing to do that? And, and some are so vocal enough, they're trying to do something to stop them from injecting. So here you are, you know, you represent a big, big numbers of, of cosmetic doctors there. And I think there are, it, is, it is true. I have to actually say that there are a lot of cosmetic doctors there who are genuinely threatened and felt, you know, quite strongly that a lot of nurses should not be injecting. Now, I could be 100% wrong. Maybe they are, have some issue with them injecting, particularly those that are not trained. So that's what I sort of have heard or actually seen people talk about. So that, that's why I'm just going to raise this because we're trying to be as transparent as possible here. Point of order. Point of order. Stephen, we love nurses. We all have nurses. They all work with us as a team on an equal basis. We have no concerns about registered nurses who uh, I had mentioned at the very opening of this, of my uh, introduction, the first pe two people that handed me a syringe were mm. registered nurses. Mm. I love registered nurses that know what they're doing. I love doctors that know what they're doing. And, and you're not within the college. Uh, so you don't know, uh, respectfully, uh, what the opinion is of the members of the college. Members of the college is uh, for cosmetic physicians. They have no opinion about, you know, um, bad nurses or we, we have more concern about bad doctors because that's who we represent. Well, thank you very much for that clarification. On that note, just so that you know, my first syringes was handed to, handed to me in 2004 by a registered nurse who now resides in Brisbane. So, you know, here am I, you know, fast forward, how many years now? 17 years now, I'm still injecting. Yeah, 25. 
Um, I was just going to say, um, and Michael, please don't take offence to this, and you know, I, I don't want to talk out of school, but you know, I've, I've been in the industry for, as I said, close to fifteen years, and I, and I know that you know the CPCA sometimes has a reputation for for writing complaints um, to various regulators. Um, is there any any truth to that? And if so, what do you think is driving it, and, and how do we move forward? What evidence do you have that that is the case? Well. Letters that I've that I've letters that I've seen over the years that I'm not going to go into specifics about, um, and maybe other people um, sitting in this room can can attest to that. Um, I think I think what happens is that uh, a lot of patients that have adverse events uh, come to medical practitioners, whether they're cosmetic physicians or not, uh, and they're afraid. They're, they they they're embarrassed. They're they're ashamed of the fact that they've made a, a mistake. They blame themselves, but they never make a complaint. They never make a complaint because they, they just want to forget about it. But there are occasions where they act as, you know, advisors to those particular patients and say, well, look, if you feel this is wrong, you should make a complaint. Those sorts of things, uh, whether it be a nurse, a doctor, a dentist, uh, there is such a thing, by the way, as a mandatory uh, notification. Uh, sometimes people get confused about whether that, that there's an obligation for them to make that complaint under those circumstances. There's good and bad in all areas, but I, I, I just ask for the evidence of what you just stated because I don't believe that's true. So <clears throat> moving off uh, that point onto the topic of patient safety, um, I don't know if Stephen probably knows the most um, details about the Jean Hoang case, the lady who died in Sydney. Do you just want to present it and, and then we can sort of pivot off that? Because there was a big knee-jerk reaction from various bodies as well as the health um, boards as a result of that case. Yeah, thank you. Um, I think this happened probably, what, five years ago, something like that. There was a unregistered dermatologists from overseas who attempt to inject some fillers to this young lady's breast in the office somewhere in Broadway. This young lady happened to own that clinic and she died not because of the, the procedure, she died because of overdose of tremadol. Um, from overdose of tramadol in order to provide her pain relief and some sedation. That was the reason that she died, not because of the procedure itself. So just to be clear, there was an unregistered doctor, let's say, um, doing an unusual procedure and they died of a complication of a drug overdose. Correct. So as a result of that, and we'll start with you, Stephen, do you agree that there was a a, a right investigation into what are we doing as an industry, but it seemed to be, and you know, I've worked in David's clinics and I have reports from many friends, nurse injectors, doctor injectors, where there was sort of a heavy-handed approach to um, clinics being audited by various health boards and lots of fingers were pointed at various things, including the nurses. And I couldn't really understand why the nurses were singled out in that particular case. And as a result of that, 
you know, and Michael, I mean no offence, there was a bit of anecdotal sort of chat that the CPCA was sort of driving some sort of health um, regulatory change as a result of that case. But we'll start with Stephen, then we'll come to you, Michael. Yeah. I think whenever, you know, you have a, a, a mortality from a cosmetic procedure, and this is, you know, big headline, and the governing body needs to be seen to do something. And unfortunately, sometimes they get advice from some certain bodies and they go to search for that thing. I do know that a lot of clinic has been searched for some illegal uh, injectable material and a lot of nurses has also been, sort of the name has been thrown out in the media and so shouldn't be doing this, you should be doing that. We, we, we've seen that all. So as to why, I don't know. Perhaps they've been given the wrong advice. Devin? Yeah, look, I'm not one to comment with this, but possibly a knee-jerk reaction just with the governing bodies, yeah. Um, I guess the government's got to be seen to actually do something, especially when there's a mortality involved with um, with this. Is it? Yeah, um, like Stephen said before, you know, perhaps the who the government went to for advice, there was no nurse representation as part of that investigation. Um, so we weren't represented there. The environment the procedure was conducted in, I think it might have been, you know, a beauty salon or something of the like, which, you know, like we said earlier, nurses tend to predominantly work at, not exclusively though. Um, so perhaps it was just, you know, a combination of those two things um, that made it seem like a bit of an anti-nurse you know, campaign. Michael, do you want to comment on that? Well, I'm feeling a little bit uh, uh, singled out here, or at least the CPCA is singled out. I don't know what evidence you've got that uh, that uh, the CPCA has something to do with this. As, uh, we, as a major stakeholder, certainly we with New South Wales Health, um, we're certainly asked uh, our opinion about those sorts of things in general terms. We never, there was no such, so far as I'm aware, there was no such uh, concentration uh, on this particular case by the CPCA. It was more of a general uh, answer to specific questions that were posed to us by the Department of Health, um, uh, you know, um, as major stakeholders in, in the field. You know, the, when we had the uh, joint ministerial inquiry in 2018, I was actually really surprised and disappointed that, uh, the, that the joint senators, and there were something like 15 of them, really had no concept of the difference between cosmetic surgery and cosmetic medicine, let alone what tramadol was or how this particular uh, person met her demise. So... Um, you know, you, people can come to some sort of conclusion uh, without knowing the facts. Uh, and the facts are that the Cosmetic Physicians College of Australasia are major stakeholders in this, in this area. So it's not surprising that we're asked an opinion about the general circumstances. We certainly can't comment on a particular case especially in, if it had not gone to the coroner's court. We would never do that. So I, I'm, I'm actually offended that, you know, the CPCA is being singled out here in this conversation as being the bad, bad people. 
We're just responding to questions that are being posed to us as major stakeholders in this field. Thanks for that, Michael. And, you know, don't want you to feel singled out. What we do every podcast is we try and do some research. We reach out to every listener. We go to the social media channels and we're just basically asking the questions that the public have given us. So thanks for answering that. Um, Are any of the people here aware of any regulatory change that actually did happen as a result of the case? Um, Anything major that you think was positive? Anything that wasn't done that should have been done, Stephen? I I wasn't sure whether this was related to that particular case. In New South Wales, there was a law being passed that we're not allowed to use sedation. We're not allowed to use, I think, intramuscular or intravenous, intravenous sedation in any room cosmetic, in any cosmetic procedure to be performed in the room, especially no liposuction to be done with intravenous sedation in the room. Yeah, I, I think I, I agree with that. I mean, Singapore passed a similar rule um, with death with liposuction, I think about seven, eight years ago. So now it's everything in the, in the hospital. So, just I'll just give you sort of a platform to sort of respond to some of the things that have been said. So the CNA that you represent, you're the president, why, why was that formed? Did, did you feel that you didn't have a voice as a result of the, all of this background? Yeah, so we were aware, you know, back in 2017 of this happening. We didn't have a voice back then. But really the CNA now has been formed as a response to COVID happening and not having a voice throughout the COVID period. Um, but, you know, going back to this this question, there wasn't any nurse representation. However, you know, the CNA established about a year ago, um, we're actually finding that we are actually being consulted now with government. So we recently got approached uh, by Tasmania um, for advice down there, which is really positive. Um, there's currently a paper out for consultation for the reclassification of S4 um, toxin and fillers with New South Wales Health, which the CNA has written um, a response to. So um, it's all positive for nurses moving forward. I think now that we do have a CNA and the fact that we do actually have some representation. So moving forward, we hope that um, this same thing won't, won't be happening again. Perfect, um, thank you. Oh, sorry, Michael, please add. Yeah, uh, um, I'd just like to ask uh, Jacinta, um, can we meet? Yeah, of course. That'd be great. When can we meet? Sorry, can we just ask that again because we've missed that? Yeah, uh, yeah, of course After we can meet. Or... We can we can take it offline and, and make a time. Okay, um, let's do that because uh, obviously there are areas of um, you know commonality here, and I applaud the, the you know the formation of the CNA, uh, and I'm, I'm sure that uh, that we can you know find some very very important common ground. Can I just sort of maybe add to that? I mean, the reason we started this episode of the podcast was because we felt that the various bodies, plastics, derms, nurses, etc., weren't talking. Um, so if you want to talk to one association, would it not be appropriate that, you know, podcast doesn't have to be part of it, but we could help facilitate a proper in-person meeting where everyone is involved and including dentists and anyone else who wants to join. Um, So I don't know if anyone here is happy with that or not. I'm just sort of voicing that hopefully by the end of this podcast, some common ground is sort of met. And I think, you know, like David said, you know, 
things like teleconsulting, etc., they're happening. We, we can argue about it all we like, but that is how things work. And so I think we have to move forward and work out what is best for an injector group, not physicians, nurses, plastics, derms, etc. Well, if I can add to that, we need to determine what's best for the public, what's best for the patient. Yeah, I agree, Michael. And I just wanted to... Um just sort of, I guess, add to Jake, Jake's sentiments, you know, apologies if you felt singled out, you know, we, we do field questions from people that sent things things and that's why we wanted you on this, on this podcast to set the record straight, um, you know, correct, uh, correct, correct, incorrect assumptions. And so that we can all get on the same page. I mean, we all here because we passionately care about the industry and we want it to move forward. We want it to move forward in a positive direction. And, you know, as Stephen alluded to, we're in a blue sky industry, you know, the sky is the limit. And if we all work together and, and truly collaborate and truly have, the patients at the front of our mind in terms of safety and getting the best outcomes, then we can grow this industry together and we can make it better. And if we have issues, you know, like this is great. I mean, you know, you've got the president of the CPSA wanting to meet with the CNA to, to meet on common ground and, and to move forward together because if we can communicate in, in this respect, in, in, in this way respectfully and constructively, then the, it's only going to be better for everyone in the industry as stakeholders and people that own businesses and injectors and for patients. For sure. Yeah, yeah, Jake, I think that's a great idea. Get all, let's get all the stakeholders together. Let's all meet. And I think that would be a really positive step forward for our, our industry. Perfect. So just moving on to, I guess, a, a different topic altogether. Um, I remember when I was a surgeon, I had to keep a logbook of every procedure that I've done, whether it's draining an abscess or an appendix or a hemicolectomy. But Right now, we don't have a mandatory registry of, you know, putting stuff in people's faces, keeping a log of what we do or, or anything like that. So, you know, Stephen, you're a surgeon. Do you feel that there's any legs to or merit in doing something along those lines where we have to sort of be more accountable for what we're putting in people's faces? Well, I think, I think it certainly require as part of our training whether or not we do, we all have our, well, at least I, I'm sure all of us have our own internal audit as to how many procedures, whether it's injectable non I have done, I do have it. Whether or not, I mean, I'm not entirely sure what is it for. Is it for my own personal audit and how many cases I've done? I think the most important thing is, it's more about the training, how many cases you should be doing before you should be able to do it independently. I think that's probably more important. That's why we have a structured training in every single thing. We have to, just like you in UK, have so many cases before you can move on to the next. Otherwise, you fail. You have to do another year. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess the purpose of, or my idea behind it was, we all say we can't prove our competence. We don't have a qualification you know, you could be a first-year nurse or a, or a Stephen Liu and, you know, the, the patient doesn't know that. So if there was some sort of way, even if it was just for ourselves to begin with, wouldn't be public, presumably, where we could actually meet a mentor and say, look, I've done 15,000 Botoxes this year and, you know, 1,900 tear troughs, whatever, then at least you have some legs and data and proof that you've got some experience. Yeah, so that I, was really my idea behind it. Yeah, that. I think that, that that is good, but it's not the number of cases. I want to know what are your complications too, right? I mean, you know, I have seen some very, very well-known injectors who have been doing for 30 years, but when you actually see them doing it, 
you can't, I'm sure all of you have seen it, you can't also, really? 30 years and you're still doing this? I'm just not so sure. So I, I, I don't know the answer to that. But yes, I think, I think if you if you talk about that, I like to actually see them actually collecting those cases before you're allowed to be done in real life. Yeah, I think in the ideal world, that would be great. I mean, um, I'm part of the training program for the derms and as part of, I'm sure with plastics as well, as part of what we do, we need to actually sign off on um, on the trainees' uh, competence. Uh, they pass for an exam. I think it's going to be really difficult when it comes to injectables because we're, we're doing it in the private setting um, and this is where I think it's going to be challenging, right? Because ideally, we like to have a logbook. Ideally, we like to have accountability for our cases we do. But how do we do it in a uh, in a in a in the private practice in the in the clinical setting? I think that's a challenge. Um, well, I was going to say one way would be to get some leading key opinion leaders like yourselves to get behind it, and the, the you know the sheep will follow. If Stephen Lou's doing it, if Davin Lou's Davin Lim's doing it, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, people will think well might be the right thing to do because if they're doing it then I also need to show that I'm doing something as well but it's just an idea it's just something I thought from my surgical days Michael do you have any comments on on this sort of um logbook or mandatory reporting of adverse events anything like that yes I certainly do um as I mentioned uh, earlier uh part of my platform uh uh at, at election um, was to establish a, a credible training program which involved competency assessment. Um, and I'm glad to say that we've uh, we've instigated that and we're well on the way to establishing an, an Australian qualification framework level eight, which is equivalent to a sort of master's degree. Um, and it, it's far more complex than we thought it was going to be, so it's taken us some time. But it's really with a... Uh, registered training organisation that's independent from uh, ourselves, even though that we write the content, uh, we don't make the uh, assessment of, uh, of whether a person is um, competent in their knowledge, at least. But we make an assessment on competency uh, at, and physical competency and examination for coming through to fellowship at this present time. So... Uh, the other issue is, in my particular case, uh, I work out of uh, an accredited healthcare facility uh, and we established that accreditation in 2010 and we've successfully passed five audits ever since that time. We're up for a new audit uh, in a couple of months' time. Uh, under those circumstances with the Australian uh, Council on Healthcare Services, you're required to have some sort of credentialing process. And if you and if you look at any aspect of general health, uh, credentialing is the key word, um, and uh, you have to apply to uh, you know the, the 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 people that are going to credential you and organisation. So you have to provide evidence. If I was to bring in another person into my organisation, then they would need to fulfil certain requirements and prerequisites that fit that credentialing process and provide evidence of uh, experience, uh, including three referees that would be followed up. So those are the processes that uh, that happen in general medicine, and I don't see why they shouldn't be used in cosmetic medicine as well. Thanks, Michael. Um, just moving on to um, 
the topic of uh, private entities such as CMAC and AMET that have recently come online. And Jake and I had a lovely conversation with the two founders of AMET. Was it earlier this year? I think it was. Lovely ladies, um, backgrounds in industry, very passionate about what they're doing. I know they've got um, people like yourself um, on board, Stephen, and uh, uh, Professor Greg Woodman um, from Victoria as well. So what do you think the roles are of these organisations? I mean, they, their data is going to be confidential. And what is the answer for emergency treatments and, and tertiary advice? I think my understanding, I, I think I supported it because it's a very, very good initiative. I think this is, there are a lot of lone practitioners out there who does not truly have any support. I think this organization will be an ideal for them to provide at least some ways or for them to refer to somebody else to actually treat it. It's almost like you don't have immediate friends who are specialists or who you can actually look up to to actually say, I have this problem, can you help me? So I think this as a bridge for that referral and getting that quick help is a good one until we can get a better way of helping these individuals. Just to sort of, um, I guess, clarify for the listeners that AMET is a, a new organisation here in Australia. It's basically an emergency um, triaging service and support service for cosmetic injectable emergencies and queries. Um, Davin, do you have any sort of yeah, comments on that? We, we had a talk about this here over a couple of beers <laughs> a couple of weeks, a couple of months ago. Look, I'm, I'm all for it. I mean, um, speaking to my nurse, I actually spoke to one of my nurses today who's working um, in another clinic. And I said, look, what's the best way for you? Like, what do you do? And she just, Davin, I've got you. But then I said, what do other nurses do? Mm-hmm. Network, right? So they network for the physician. So if anything goes wrong, um, they, they have someone there. So I think this gives you, a, this is a formal place for which someone can be referred to. And as I spoke to you, Jake, I'm, I'm, I'm for it. I mean, I did derm because I like to see the complications. I like to don't see like complications every day and don't have a, I don't want to have a complication clinic, but this is what I signed up for, yeah? And I think there's a lot of physicians, plastics, derms, we want to support that because that's why I did medicine for, yeah. But equally, this is a good point. I am, in tr- I am astounded how many patients or how many phone calls that I've got where other clinic refuse to see complication from other practitioners. And and that's the thing that I, I don't fully understand. Whereas for me, just like you is, I'm a doctor, I'm a surgeon, I'm here to assist whether or not it's my patient or not. It is my responsibility. I see it in my response to actually open my arms and I'm going to help you. And just to sort of open clarification, I actually referred a patient to Stephen probably two or three years ago now for a complicated vascular occlusion that took mm. multiple high lasers. Mm. So I'm lucky in that respect that I had access to a network, but mm. you know, you do feel for these injectors mm. who don't. But I guess we go back to the, the scripting question of where is the doctor in all of this? You know, if the prescripting doc- prescribing doctor is, you know, there at the end of the phone to say, go ahead with treatment, where are they? to manage the occlusion or otherwise. And, and I guess that's where it, where it comes down to locality, et cetera. I cannot just, I, I, I can, uh, if, I, if I can, I can talk to that. Um, when a patient has a complication, 
they lose faith uh, and confidence in the person that provided the procedure in the first place. So it's natural for people to be seeking out whom they may think or with their research is better adapt, a better adapt to uh, handle those sorts of situations. So um, I, I think that's, that answers the question about well, why didn't why didn't the patient go back to the the person that did the procedure in the first place? Because look, uh, anybody that says they've never had a complication is either lying or they haven't done enough work. Um, uh, on the question of uh, AMAP, um, I think it's a, that's a superb idea. We need that kind of support. Uh, we have within our own particular college, uh, and I see it on another Facebook group called the Cosmetic uh, Cosmetic Practitioners Network. There's three or four of these organisations, and I see some of the questions that come up, and it's quite clear that um, these people are really um, inexperienced uh, with, with a lot of the questions that they pose. But you've got to start somewhere, and we just come back to this process of where do people get proper uh, education uh, of these sorts of things? Uh, and really, uh, we're, we're stuck with two-day courses, the people that are charged $5,000 uh, per practitioner, they get 20 people on the course for a two-day course. That's $100,000. That's pretty good money. Uh, but it doesn't really give you, give anything to the practitioner who thinks that they can just go off tomorrow and and do anything they want. And then they get in trouble and then they get onto those cosmetic network uh, Facebook with the 300 members and go, what happened here? Can anybody help me? Fortunately, there are a lot of people that will contribute to those uh, questions and, and help those people out. But we do need to make it a bit more uh, organised. Jacinta, do you, uh, did you want to add anything to that? Um, yeah, I, just, I think it's a great initiative, um, the AMET, but, you know, particularly for doctors that may need to refer for, um, you know, specialist help for complications. But one concern of mine is, um, you know, nurses feeling like their doctor's don't have the skill set to be able to address their issues. So why are nurses prescribing to this service when the, their prescribing doctor should have the resources within their, their themselves to be able to address that? That's just one little concern that I have. Yeah, very important. Thanks, Jacinta. Um, so let's move on to what we have sort of uh, coined here as a universal training syllabus. And it's a, it's a topic that is very controversial and there doesn't seem to be an easy answer to it. Um, because there is no uh, officially recognised training program or qualification to, to do cos cosmetic injectables. Um, so maybe before we get into to that, in terms of the solution, maybe you could just go around and just tell us uh, in a couple of minutes, you know, summarise your training and how you initially became, you know, familiar with what you do and, and trained in, in the procedures that you perform. Um, okay, fine. Um, well, I did five years of medical degree at Sydney University and subsequently spent 10 years in the hospital system being trained to be a specialist plastic surgeon I spent two years overseas in my specialized post fellowship so that's why i think it gave me all the background sort of training and backbone to what i do today if i could sort of push you a little bit we're just talking about injectables okay uh injectable i'm self-taught 
Um, I've alluded that at my first syringe was 2004. And then basically use every part of my surgical principle in doing fat grafting and understanding the anatomy and how to, and also self-taught about behavior of fillers and, and where I should put that product. Yeah, I was fortunate. Um, I finished in 2006, 2007, I started doing uh, procedural work. Uh, 2008, um, a good friend of mine, Phil Bickle, said, you know, Dav, you should really do fillers. Yeah, there's not many derms doing it. So I started then. Uh, my first filler patient was a Greg Goodman. He did a tear trough and he goes, watch this. Now you do the other side. <laughs> and yeah. that was how it flowed. Thanks, Davin. Jacinta? Yeah, so for myself, I joined a corporate company that had an in-house um, training program. So my training was one-on-one over about two weeks um, where I had a nurse educator um, training me exclusively. Um, and since then, I've actually gone away and I've, I'm one subject away from finishing my postgrad. Um, but I think what's important to note is that, you know, depending on how long ago you trained, there's a massive variation in what training was provided. You know, years ago, a four-hour course on neuromodulators and off you went, you know. Um, so I think we know a lot more now and we know that we need to be far more extensive um, in our training and, you know, need to improve that. Michael? Uh, well, you know, um, I agree with Jacinta. Uh, <laughs> back in 1995, uh, that we were injecting collagen and Botox. Um, I, you know, I purchased a, a, a business that did hair transplants and, um, you know, it was kind of a sideline with about half a dozen patients. And, and I remember thinking, well, this can't be that hard, you know. And the first patient that came in, and it, and it was, as I say, it was collagen in those days, and, and I, she had crow's feet and, and I, I I injected crow's feet with like collagen, and it was it was awful, and uh, and I felt really bad. I thought that I I knew what I was doing, and this is the trap. This is that you, you think that you know what you're doing, but there's so much to this. There is so much to this, much more than ever, anybody ever knew in 1995, and certainly much more than a lot of people know in 2021. So. And, and the, the, you know, the knowledge base just get bigger and bigger, the, the, the understanding of these sorts of things. For instance, I went only three years, four years ago, I, I went to Amsterdam to learn uh, ultrasound of the face. Ultrasonographers in their tr standard training don't do anything about the face. They don't know that they, they, don't, they never use, they never use an ultrasound on a patient's face. Um, I, I use it all the time in terms of dermal fillers. So these things are constantly evolving. But um, so that comes down to continuous professional development. You need to keep up with things. You need to be doing continuous training and, and gaining experience and visiting other people, going to conferences. That's how you gain conference. Uh, that's how you gain confidence. That's how you gain experience. And it just builds. But... I feel sorry for people that are coming into the industry and the profession for the very first time and don't know that they need more than a two-day course. 
Yeah, I mean, actually, all of us in the room are trainers. Uh, you know, we, we all train injectors, and I still get messages from you know new injectors onto the scene saying, "Hey, I've heard you're in trainer. How do I train?" And I don't know what to tell them because you know there are so many associations. There's colleges like Michael's. There's um, third-party training companies like Face Coach, Derma Medical. You've got the pharma companies offering you know basic training, etc. And it all seems to come down to um, what that various college or association thinks is appropriate, but it's not joined up and commercial yeah. interest because at the end of the day, this is a business and we can charge good money for training. And so I'm just curious to know what, you know, we'll start with you, Devin, because, you know, you've done some training in the past. How do you think that training should be delivered and who should be doing it? I think it should be a body of, um, you know, first of all, define an expert. Yeah, so it should be a body of experts. Um, I think that, look, from what I understand, nurses can come out now um, straight off, um, straight off the bat, um, and start injecting. And role nurses can do that. Nurse practitioners, it's, I think they're a much higher level. Um, I think they're much safer um, endpoint, yeah, as in a much safer starting point uh, because they've had a minimum of four years uh, experience. I've got to have, from what I understand, 300 hours in their own um, specialty interests. Um, so I, I think that ideally I would like to see, you know, when we talk about logbooks um, and mentorship, ideally I would like to see that. Uh, and who do we, who mentors? Yeah, I think... The first thing is to actually start with a governing body. Um, who are these experts, whether it be cosmetic physicians, nurses, nurse practitioners, plastics, derm, and then somehow or other have the nurses that are coming out who are interested in this go through a mentorship. And I think you're going to get a bloody good product out of that. Jacinta, what's your, what's your um, sort of background and training and how do you think it should work? Yeah, um, I think we talked earlier about whether you, the pharma companies should be doing it or not, which, you know, I think as a um, as a basis for rheology and how their fillers actually work, that's fine, but not for basic training because there's too much of a conflict of interest there. You know, the pharma companies can't even, um, you know, talk about highlays because it's not their own product. So, you know, I don't think it should necessarily come from there. Like I alluded to earlier, we would love to see nurses have a postgrad qualification in this space, so from an RTO and similarly doctors as well, you know, new doctors that are coming out. Yeah. yeah, so um, who's who's examining the examiners? So you need a registered training organisation that is at arm's length. And if you look at any other vocational educational training or uh, quaternary uh, educational training body like a uh, university and so on, these are at arm's length, they're registered training organisations that, that call the shots, and they and then they call the shots because they're told to call the shots. They have to perform uh, certain uh, uh, stand. They have to produce things, educational programs at certain standards that meet the Australian qualification framework. This is where we all need to go. Uh, you know, it it might not be the best process, but in the end, it is a universal process. It's a, it's a universal uh, educational uh, program that ac across the board, whether you're a plumber, whether you're a doctor, a dentist or whatever it might be, there should be some kind of Australian qualification framework standard, which is what, you know, the CPCA has been intent on in the last two years. So that, that's where I think it should go. 
to have that registered training organisation that is at arm's length, you certainly can provide the content, but it needs to be examined by other people, not by the people that say we are the examiners, because who examines the examiners? That's a good, that's a good point, Michael. Thank you. Um, in terms of what should be trained for a new injector, and I've seen different different approaches of uh, injectors coming out, learning how to do basic talks for um, sort of upper face and maybe cheeks and lips. And that seems to be the standard that most injectors come out these days with their, their basic skill set. Do you think that's appropriate? Do you think we need to take a different course or do you have any other suggestions, uh, Stephen? I, I, I'm, I'm just going to, I think, I think from my perspective, from toxin perspective, the upper third is fairly safe. It is a safe place. I think there's no problem with that. I think the problem is more with the fillers. I'm I'm torn because lips is the number one indication in this country, in most Western country. And lips is actually not, it's probably one of the hardest area for me to actually do it consistently well. And also it's a highly vascular area. If there's one area that I felt is safer to start teaching individual will be the lateral cheek. That will be the first place that if I will want to teach someone to get them a feel of how to treat it, that will be the first place I'll go for. Certainly not the lips, certainly not the nasal labial as what we have been taught before. It's a, it's a difficult one, isn't it? Because as you said, lips, and I'll get to you in a sec, David, lips is the most common procedure other than tox that people are coming in for. So, that, Correct. Yeah, it's a difficult one, isn't it? So, yeah, sorry, Davin, go, go on. Yeah, 100% agree. Um, I, I teach all my nurses with uh, lateral cheek first. Um, and I mean, we know why lips. It's because there's a commercial gain there. It's it's like you say, it's the number one um, area for, for injectables, um, but it's a bloody dangerous area. I mean, if we all agree that patient safety is the number one priority and we're not about commercial gain, it should be a quite easy decision that it isn't the first thing that's taught. And like Stephen said, we start with safer areas mm. um, and then we go from there, we progress. However, we agree that there's a, a you know a second level, third level, etc., then it would seem like or logical that it's not the first thing that you learn. But like you said, market pressures seem to dictate what we yeah. teach, yep. unfortunately. Yeah. Jacinta, do you want to add to that? Yeah, you know, just um, throwing in another sort of angle, I think, you know, regardless of the areas that we're treating, we also need to really make sure that we're teaching um, our clinicians about, you know, informed consent, you know, all the contraindications. Um, managing the complications, um, you know, we need to manage expectations and also mental health, um, you know, and when we talk about anatomy, there's so many different layers of the anatomy that we need to know about. It's not just the injectable side because we know if we want to be really good at what we do, we need to know all the different layers so that we can get our patients the best outcomes. Michael, what, what do you think on that? Where do we start? What's, what, what's the syllabus and, and where do we start people off with the basics? Uh, the, the basics uh, begin with understanding the theory, understanding the anatomy, understanding what can happen and what can go wrong and what not to do rather than what you should do. So um, <clears throat> so if you're talking about areas, uh, Stephen uh, uh, and I are uh, uh, members of a consensus group that wrote a paper on the most uh, hazardous areas of the facial anatomy when uh, injecting dermal fillers. 
Um, so we certainly wouldn't be starting with no's, wouldn't we, Stephen? <laughs> Not at all. But, and yet, um, you know, this is the most dangerous and the most hazardous area. Uh, and, and uh, you know, I, unfortunately, I see these sorts of things being um, written about in the popular press about uh, um, non-invasive nose jobs and things like that. So that drives the patient demand. And, and so, you know, the people that are coming into the, into the area go, well, I want to know how to do noses. It's the most dangerous area you should be working in. Lips, you know, I've seen, lip, uh, you know, with, with ultrasound, I've seen the, 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 the labial artery, whether it's the superior or inferior labial artery, wind through all regions uh, like, a, like a snake. You've only got to get a needle into one of those vessels and you've got a major problem. So lips are definitely not the first place that you should be te teaching people to, to inject dermal fillers. I don't, to be honest with you, I don't know where. Uh, you would start. I think you need to be thinking about when you hand a person a syringe, you can tell straight away whether they've got, uh, or I can anyway, uh, an experienced person can tell the moment you hand someone a syringe as, as for the first time how they hold it and how they address the patient as to whether or not they've got the dexterity and the understanding of what's underneath that needle. So, it varies with different different people, and small small jobs first. You know, take do, do the least amount and get into the least amount of trouble. Thanks, Michael. Well, we've been talking for just short of two hours, and I think we've covered some some really interesting ground. I think we've found some common ground. I think there was a few heated moments, and apologies, Michael. Again, if you felt picked on, wasn't the intention at all. And you know, I know Jake and I and everyone in this room is very thankful that you were here and we, we got your contributions and your point of view. So thank you. Thank you very much um, for attending. Um, oh. Thank you. Um, did anyone just want to tell our listeners how they can get in, in contact with each of you? Um, if they wanted to reach out, ask questions, career advice, maybe they want to um, talk to you from a patient perspective. Jake, um, I don't think our listeners know much about you. Do you want to tell us um, a little bit about you? Well, no, I just wanted to echo what you just said. Um, you know, we've flown a couple of people in. Unfortunately, Michael couldn't be here, but thank you for Zooming. I know it was a little bit clunky, but I think we got there in the end. Um, I, look, I, I think this is the start of a really good discussion. Um, it's There's certainly um, more ground that we could cover. There's lots of questions that we haven't answered, but we're just sort of pressed for time. But I think the good thing is that we've agreed on most of things that we've, we've covered here. Um, and hopefully if there's any other stakeholders who are listening, we'd be at the dental group, um, nurse practitioners, anyone else who feels maybe sort of left out. It was purely because of logistics that we couldn't have everyone in one room, but perhaps something could happen in the future um, where we can carry on this conversation. So, Stephen, any parting remarks? No, I think it's all good. We managed to cover a lot of things, and um, the best way to contact me is via social media. Which is? Oh, <laughs> yeah, I think it's Dr. Stephen Liu and Shape Clinic. One of those, yeah. Thank you. Davin? Yeah, look, I'm, I'm, as, as you know, I'm pretty active with social media. I always say, look, I'm happy this to, in fact, I really like complex cases. I don't like complex patients. So if you want to contact me <laughs> at 101.skin, really hard cases, challenging cases, but not challenging patients. Thanks. Thanks, Davin. And Jacinta, um, again, thank you for joining us and um, tell us how patients can get in contact with you or if any nurses out there 
that are feeling like they don't have the support or they don't know about um, the Cosmetic Nurses Association, can you please um, let them know how they contact you and how they can get involved? Yeah, thank you so much for having me and thank you for the invite. It's been wonderful being here. Um, so if you'd like to contact the Cosmetic Nurses Association, our website is cosmeticnursesassociation.org.au. Um, so all of our contact details are on there. If you'd like to get in touch with me personally, um, social media also is the best. And my um, handle is jacintaking.registerednurse. And uh, Michael, can you tell us how people can get in contact with yourself? Yeah, of course. Um, so the best way is to visit our website, which is cpca. www.cpca.net.au and uh, if there are listeners that are looking for a cosmetic position you'll find us in the find a doctor section and if you wish to contact me in person you can write down this email address drmolton as in Dr Moulton M-O-L-T-O-N at epiclinic e-p-i-c-l-i-n-i-c dot com dot au Thank you. Thanks again, everyone, um, for joining us. Thank you to Marla for joining us as well. She's been our silent assassin in the background, helping us with uh, all things to do with this uh, podcast, this special panel podcast and all of our social media. So thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. Pleasure being here. All right, guys, and let us know what you think of this uh, panel discussion. We would love to do more. We'd love your feedback and thank you for listening. Thanks, guys. We're off to Mr. Wong's in Sydney. Thanks, guys. (laughs) For our latest news, upcoming guests and episode topics, follow us on Instagram at Inside Aesthetics Podcast. During the week before every recording, look out for our Instagram stories as we'll give you the opportunity to submit your questions to our guests and get a shout out. You can also DM us for any other information, suggestions or guest requests. 